It's always bad to start with an apology, but I'm going to start with an apology. Uh, things for which I'm not wholly responsible have intervened over the last few weeks, and uh, so life has been a little bit disrupted. This isn't the talk that I had planned to give, uh, and instead of doing the talk I planned to give, uh, what I'm going to do, inflict upon you, is the run-through of the argument that I think might structure the book that Lindsay mentioned. Uh, it's not quite the authorised version because it was put together late last night and early this morning and I haven't uh, run it past Joel Abirashed, my co-author. But it's as... You'll be the first to tell me it's rubbish, so it's already falling apart. Um, let's begin. So, in 1950, the BBC uh, produced a series of talks on, on the radio. It was called The Physical Basis of Mind, and the talks were introduced by Charles Sherrington, who'd won the Nobel Prize in 1932. And at the beginning of the century in 1900, Sherrington was commenting on this question of the physical basis of mind. And he remarked then, we have to regard the relationship of mind to brain as still not merely unsolved, but devoid of a basis for its very beginning. And when he introduced the talks on the BBC, he said this, Aristotle, 2,000 years ago, was asking how the mind is attached to the body. We're asking that question still. And all the contributors who were in that series, Edgar Adrian, Wilder Penfield, a whole lot, Gilbert Ryle, a whole lot of others, they disagreed about many things. But the one thing they agreed about was that this question, the relationship of the mind to the brain or the mind to the body, was an insoluble question and we weren't about to find any solution to it soon. Now, something's happened since then. Something's happened which is partly indicated by this little slide here, which tells you that in 2008, over 26,500 papers were published in the neurosciences. And you can see the exponential growth. Sorry, it's not quite an exponential growth, but you know what I mean. You'll see the linear growth <laughs> of papers in the neurosciences over that 50 years, starting just after um, uh, Sherrington made his... Uh, made his remarks. Now, few people claim to have resolved the um, mind-brain problem. Of course, there are the statements which those of you who know this area will be very familiar with, designed to shock. Francis Crick says, you're nothing but a pack of neurons. Uh, the Churchlands make similar kinds of arguments. But in the real world, very few people suggest a relationship between brain states and mental states. That's one of determinism or identity. Perhaps the closest one might get to it is this quote I put up on the screen here. And by the way, I put these PowerPoints together really rather <laughs> rapidly, so they're unfinished and I hope they'll stick. Um, he says, in 1999, mental disorders are characterized by abnormalities in cognition, emotional mood, blah, 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 blah. These mental functions are all, quote, mediated by the brain. It's in fact a core tenet of modern science that behavior and our subjective mental lives reflect the overall workings of the brain. Thus, symptoms relating to behavior or our mental lives clearly reflect variations or abnormalities in brain function. Reflect, mediate by, clearly reflect. Others speak of neural correlates of mental states and processes or of neural systems and neural circuits that subserve and implement behavior. 
Now, it's clear from these terms that in most cases, the explanatory gap remains. And really, it remains troubling only to philosophers, only to the Bennett and Hackett of this world. It's not really in the operational work of the neurosciences, a really troubling issue to them. Although, of course, some do claim that they have resolved this question, come close to an identity theory of neural determinism, especially those people who are working on conscious decision-making and the will and who argue that that is an artifact. Nonetheless... Something is happening, and that something that's happening, and this is what I'm going to try and explain in this rapid rush through the argument in the book, which will leave you to use an old-fashioned psychological term, I hope, with a kind of gestalt of what the argument is rather than the detailed access to the argument. The something that is happening is the move from the lab to the clinic and the world. Now, you'll all be familiar with books of this, of this type, and one could put thousands more. Uh, to understand what's going on uh, when people engage in social interactions with one another, when they feel empathy, when they feel hostility, when they desire products, when they buy goods, when they violate laws, when they obey laws, when they're affected by poverty, child abuse, when they do violence to others, to themselves, when they fall in love, when they're moved by works of art, when they feel maternal towards their children, etc., etc., we should turn to the brain. And this is not just a question of explaining, it's also a question of intervening. Cure, reform, optimization now happening through the brain. And I've just put up on the slide the areas that will be very familiar to everybody at this conference. Neuropsychiatry arguing that the future of psychiatry lies in the integration of insights from neuroscience into clinical practice. Neuro law, not just arguments about free will not existing and so on and so forth. Not just arguments about witness de interrogation, deception and, and, and uh, 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 lie detection, which you've heard a little bit about today. But more important to me, the rise of a new biological criminology around prediction and prevention. Neuroeconomics, which you'll hear lots of papers about today, talking about the neural underpinnings of economic behavior and decision-making, social neuroscience, neuroeducation, the belief that educational practices must be based on knowledge of the brain. Apparently 90% of teachers now think that educational practice must be based on knowledge of the brain. And what particularly interests me is the emergence of something which I call neuropolicy, uh, usually framed in terms of screening and intervening early intervention into children's life, based on a view which was expressed by Polly Toynbee in last Saturday's Guardian that, quote, the brain hardens, close quote, by the age of three. Early intervention to forestall dangerous and antisocial behavior, early intervention for psychiatric disorders, and at the other end of life, early intervention for the dementias. This uh, new logic, which I've called screen and intervene, and which I'll come back to a little bit later on. So... If the neurosciences are moving in the way that I suggest, and I think maybe most people would accept who are here, are moving from the laboratory out into the clinic, out into the everyday world, turning from ways of understanding the brain and behavior into ways of intervening into behavior and conduct via the brain, how can we account for that? That's what I'm going to try and do in the middle part of this talk. I've tried, rather dopily and just for heuristic purposes, 
to identify a set of conditions which I suggest have made that move possible. Conceptual conditions, technological conditions, although they're also conceptual, conditions that I struggled this morning to think of another word for. I don't really like calling things cultural, but uh, I'll call it cultural for want of a better word, and economic conditions. And what I want to do in the next 20 minutes or so, uh, before concluding with some of the implications of this, is try and say a little bit in a rather descriptive way about some of these conditions, starting with the conceptual and epistemological conditions. The term neuroscience was invented in 1963 as part of a project by Francis Schmidt at MIT, which eventually became termed the Neuroscience Research Program, although when it started, he called it mental biophysics. Um, and this, I think, is a rather significant quote by Schmidt about what he thinks was the epistemological shift that underpinned this project, which was an interdisciplinary project trying to bring together the wet, the moist, and the dry sciences of the brain. So this is what Schmidt said, and forgive me, I'm not going to read out many quotes, but I'll read this one out. Those of us who lived through the period in which molecular biology grew up realized that here was an enormous opportunity for a new synthesis, an approach to understanding the mechanisms and phenomena of the human mind human mind that applies and adapts the revolutionary advances in molecular biology achieved during the post-war period, the breakthrough to precise knowledge in molecular genetics and immunology breaking the molecular code resulted from the productive interaction of physical and chemical sciences with the life sciences. It now seems possible to achieve similar revolutionary advances in understanding the human mind. A kind of anatomization of the human mind at the molecular level and Schmidt here has no hesitation in using the term mind. He doesn't dwell on it. Elsewhere, he talks about the burden of mental diseases, etc., etc., etc. So the mind-brain problem is just assumed by him to be overcome. And this very, to cut an extremely long story short, is the kind of way of thinking which seems to me to emerge as a result of that sort of transformation that kind of conceptual transformation. The brain can now be construed as an organ like any other organ. It can be anatomized in terms of the structure of its neurons, its synapses, its receptor sites, its ion channels. Each of these can be explained in terms of its specific biological, biochemical and molecular properties. Mental disorders can be understood as anomalies within those molecular systems. So the same things that lead to normal behavior, varied, can lead to abnormal behavior. This is an absolutely crucial distinction, actually, because it blurs the boundary between organic and functional disorders that have been so crucial to psychiatry throughout the whole of its existence. Also, normal variations in perception and cognition can be envisaged at this level, which blurs another boundary, the boundary between states and traits, variations in personality, variations in traits, can be understood in exactly the same way as variations in states, that's illness variations, a whole disciplinary uh, set of divisions and antagonisms were built on that distinction between states which were psychiatric and traits which were psychological, now no longer exists, and manipulations of the brain operate at this level. So you move from the idea that 
uh, interventions are molar, like the chemical Koch, to, a, to an imaginary that says they're molecular, like smart drugs, and I'll say a little bit about those in a moment. The second, what I think is fundamental, conceptual and epistemological transformation, which I think possibly we don't in the social sciences fully appreciate as yet, is the move to neuroplasticity, the idea of the plastic brain. And I'm going to say very little about this, but I think two kinds of moves are absolutely crucial. The first is the move for epigenesis since the late 1990s. That is a view that says that what's crucial in the development of the brain is practices of gene methylation and the kinds of environmental and cellular milieu in which the genes are activated in, in terms of the way in which the maternal relationship to the, to the child from its, its existence in the uterus through its earliest years is, is developed and so on and so forth. A move which goes in a, what seems to me a radical way beyond uh, conventional ideas of gene-environment interaction. And, of course, the leading figure here is, is Michael Meany, a very interesting paper that Meany just wrote recently on um, epigenetics there. And the other, the, the poster child here on neuroplasticity, is, of course, uh, the extremely modest Elizabeth Gould, who rather rejects many of the things that have been rested upon her argument, the argument that the brain is plastic all the way through to adulthood. Now, again, there's a little bit of a sort of mistaken understanding about this because we've all known for years and years and years that there's enormous synaptic plasticity in the brain. The synapses are growing and being pruned at a huge rate all the time. But this is, this is about the formation of new neurons and new nerve cells, not the formation of new, of new synapses. Okay, so we have a molecular brain and we have a plastic brain. And those are the two things which I think, for the sake of argument here, are uh, the conceptual shifts, technological shifts. So four, uh, are there four? Yes, there were four, I think, technological shifts at six o'clock this morning. Um, and here they go. So I think crucial in the way in which these conceptual shifts have been implemented in some way is the emergence of various kinds of technologies. And the first technology I want to draw attention to is drugs or psychopharmacology. Psychopharmacology since the 1950s has demanded and produced all sorts of new forms of knowledge about the architecture, mechanisms and processes of neurotransmission. It's anatomized neurotransmission in terms of the structure of neurons, synapses, receptor sites and ion channels. And it's investigated these in very close relationship to interventions. So all these, even the emergence of something like the idea of a receptor and its transformation from something which was hypothetical into something which was real and something which can be imaged in these kinds of simulations here, that, I mean, that is carried out in very, very close relationship with the development of drugs to intervene. Each of these elements is explained in terms of its specific biochemical properties. Mental disorders and pathologies are envisaged at this level. As I've already said, once you begin to do this, you blur the boundaries between organic and functional disorders, you blur the boundaries between normal and abnormal, between states and traits, and you begin to intervene at that level. Now, of course, this is a and imagination. This, uh, this comes from the Prozac 
website. It's designed to show you how, uh, how those selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors uh, operate. Um, and we know now that the relationship which is posed there between these SSRIs and variations in levels of de depression and lability of mood is almost entirely fictional. Um, and some of you may know that the big drug, drug companies have moved out of the uh, drug pipeline for these psychiatric drugs because this image of how the drugs work proved to be more a fantasy than a reality. But nonetheless, in the process, in the process, it generated this anatomization of uh, the neural architecture and the neural processes at that level. Thing one. Thing two, animals. Well, we could write a huge amount, in fact, we did write it, we have written a huge amount about the role that animal studies and animal models and animal experiments have played in the emergence of this. In particular, the studies carried out on the rats and mice. This is a, just a lovely quote from one of the great uh, uh, rat modelers, uh, Kurt Richter, experience of a reluctant rat catcher. If someone were to give me the power to create an animal most useful for all types of studies on problems concerned directly or indirectly with human welfare, I could not possibly improve on the Norway rat. <laughs> Why animal models are so crucial because animal models enable you to do things, to manipulate, to knock out genes, to knock in genes, to kill, so, sorry, to sacrifice the animal, to dissect its brain, to put it through all these horrible little things, the tail suspension test, uh, the, uh, the Morris water maze there, the elevated plasma. Most of these actually developed in attempts to uh, trial psychiatric drugs as it, as it happens. And, uh, of course, the rat to mouse community loves to make all these jokes. And to therefore begin to investigate in detail in the brain, in the brain of the animal now, things that you could not investigate in the brain of the human. The industrial scale of the production of animal models is, has been absolutely crucial for the development of neuroscience. Now, of course, many of the smart neuroscientists, in particular, someone like Jackie Crawley, who wrote this <coughs> lovely book called What's Wrong With My Mouse, knows exactly what the problems are in moving from those animal models to human models. Nonetheless, I want to suggest that that technological possibility was absolutely crucial. The third was genomics. Genomics, well, this is all what's on this board is, uh, you know, 101 to everybody here, the move from genetics to genomics, the end of genetic determinism, the rise of explanations based on variations at the single nucleotide level, the move away from accounts of depression and the genes for depression to seeking to understand the specific variations in, in gene sequences which are linked, say, to the activity at an ion channel, to the permeability of a membrane, to the activation of an enzyme. So again here, you begin to see the anatomization at the very molecular level of what's going on within the brain and it being linked in some way or other to this genomic anatomization and the rise in that of a very different way of thinking, a way of thinking about susceptibilities. Susceptibilities... Uh, in which multiple combinations shake activity at fundamental molecular levels. And these new ideas about susceptibilities and resiliences, as I hope to say in a moment, say something really rather, rather crucial. So that's the third of these. How am I doing for time? 
And this is the fourth, which you've heard an awful lot about. At least I have, even in the afternoon that I've, that I've managed to be here today. And I apologize for not being able to be here first thing. Is visualization. Now, in an earlier session that we had, uh, Kenneth Hogdall referred to visualization as a fundamental revolution, a Kuhnian revolution in the neurosciences. The way in which from PET to fMRI to now to, to rather smart ways of using EEGs and other forms of investigation, it seems possible to investigate activity in the living brain of the human. Now, we know that this happens at a very gross level. We know that these arguments are flawed in very many ways. And those of you who are in the session that I was earlier on will have heard quite a lot about the way in which they're flawed. Uh, we can see some of the ways in which these things are represented, the brain scan that can read people's intention. This, my particular favourite, as an example of reverse inference, uh, does rejection hurt an fMRI study of social exclusion? Some of you may have read this study. It shows that areas of the brain that are activated when an individual feels pain are also activated when an individual is excluded from a virtual ball-tossing game in, uh, in, in, a, in a scanner, and uh, because those same areas are activated in pain and in this, this ball-tossing gain in the scanner, the argument is that exclusion that is being chucked out of the ball-tossing gain causes is linked to pain. Um, now, we've had seen many, many criticisms of this. Nikos Logothetis' argument about what we can and can't do with fMRI, <coughs> Russell Poldrack's analysis in particular, focusing on the problem of reverse inference here, um, and uh, Ed Wool's uh, very controversial uh, uh, account of what was originally called uh, voodoo correlations in fMRI studies, but was slightly uh, retitled when they, managed to get it, when they managed to get it published. We we know that some of these arguments are based on very, very faulty forms of reason. And we know that they are highly misinterpreted when they are uh, placed into the public domain. But nonetheless, nonetheless, and to this extent I would agree with, with Kenneth, the imaginary here is that you can actually see what's going on within the living mind in a way in which you never could do before. So my argument about these technologies is that taking together those technologies do make a step change in our capacities to understand the brain. Anatomization of the brain at the level of neurotransmission, experimental possibilities with animal models which can compare humans and other species, correlate brain activities and species typical behaviors, link those with genomics and evolution, those seem to be absolutely crucial. Linking those with the move from genetics to genomics to SNPs, so you can begin to trace the SNP differences between one species and another species and argue that those SNP differences are related to differences in their social behavior. Some of the work that's being done by one of our ENSN collaborators, Klaus-Peter Lesch, very interesting on this, and the linking that to visualization technologies in living human beings in experimental situations. These these, I think, enable a step change here, not just a matter of a different way of thinking, 
but also the creation of a huge and expanding infrastructure of journals, of associations, of conferences. I think the recent conference of the Society for Neuroscience had something like 30,000 brain researchers there, 30,000 brain researchers at one conference. Training courses, boot camps for those who want to get into this field and so on. And it's enabled neuro to become technological in another sense because each of these technologies of investigation in a kind of reverse fashion could become the basis of a technology of intervention. <sighs> That's the technologies. This is the cultural, for want of a better word. What do I mean by that? Some colleagues working in this area have argued that we have seen a fundamental cultural shift, a shift towards what uh, uh, Alain Ehrenberg calls uh, the cerebral subject or what Fernando Vidal calls brain heart. And I am rather unconvinced about that for reasons that I'll say in a moment. But I, what I want to suggest to you is that this cultural shift in which the brain has become so important actually is part of a much more general cultural shift. And it's one that I talked about quite a lot in my last book, The Politics of Life Itself, in which I argue that in the same way as Max Weber, had, I'm trying to be a sociologist here, in the same way as Max Weber had argued, <laughs> I know it's a failing project, but there you go, <laughs> but that there was a kind of... Uh, elective equivalence between a form of extraction, capitalization, and a way of conducting one's life, a kind of Lebensführung, I want to try and suggest, or I wanted to try and suggest in that book, that something similar had happened in the rise of a kind of somatic ethic in which those fundamental questions that Kant posed to us, what can I know, what must I do, what may I hope, are now posed in somatic terms. That is to say, our soma, our genome, our neurotransmitters, our biology is given a crucial salience in the way in which we conduct ourselves. We understand ourselves partly in these terms and we shape our expectations partly in these terms. My view would be that the brain has become so important partly because these ways of thinking ourselves somatically have also extended to ways of thinking ourselves in terms of our brain. That is to say the brain has become a kind of element in this somatic ethic and the ethic of health gives special salience to neuromedicine and to the practice of working on our brains in the name of health. Uh, the brain someone whose work I, I'm, I'm absolutely incredibly fond of, Emily Martin, argues that brain metaphors about human beings are fundamentally dead. They don't provide a way of organising a form of life. Uh, on this, this, on most things I agree with, with Emily Martin, on this I disagree. And you can see here the way in which these brain metaphors about how you should care for yourself ethically and manage your life in terms of your brain spark off a huge uh, um, apparatus of uh, neuroaesthetics, as some people call it, trying to give people the instructions by which they can act on their brain. Of course, most of these don't work at all, but that's entirely, that's entirely beside the point. Second cultural shift, if I can uh, call it that, is to me it has something to do with time. And I haven't really found a way of thinking about that way of thinking about time. Temporality and the future has become very, very important in the cultures in which we live. 
We're familiar with the doctrines of precaution, of prevention, of preemption, of speculating about futures and trying to intervene in the present to avert probable horrible futures and bring about, probable, uh, bring about nice futures. Be very crude about it. Now, I think something like that, something there is happening very much in relation to the brain. Because I work in psychiatry, I've been particularly interested in the way in which these things operate in psychiatry. The projections about the implications of the burden of brain disease, as it's sometimes called, the burden of brain disease by 2020, which you see here, this is the classic piece from, uh, from the World Health Organization, making the prediction about, uh, about mental health disorders being the leading cause of disability-adjusted life years. These are some figures from, uh, from, the, from a, a European study, which is pretty much the same. They all envisage a future in which our societies are blighted and burdened by disorders of, not disorders of the mind, but disorders of the brain. Everything from, from uh, Alzheimer's uh, uh, onwards, upwards and downwards to anxiety is thought of here as a disorder of the brain. This goes along with a whole series of attempts to investigate what the cost, what the economic cost might be to that in any individual, any collective society. My own uh, institution of the London School of Economics, uh, together with my other uh, institution that I'm involved in, the Institute of Psychiatry, absolutely at the leading edge of making these predictions about what the burden is going to be in the future and how early intervention is going to resolve those things. The general move in health services towards screening, the idea that the earlier that you intervene, the better. Screen and intervene, as I've called it. Screen and intervene as early as possible. And the reframing of a lot of disorders that were not previously thought of in these terms as developmental disorders. Schizophrenia, it's a developmental disorder of the social brain. Bipolar disorder, it's a developmental disorder. Autism, of course it's a developmental disorder. If it's a developmental disorder, that means the earlier you intervene in it, the earlier you can direct a path in another direction. So this shift towards early intervention, also an early intervention on the brain, coupled with this idea that our futures might be blighted by the burden of disorder, both on each individual and on their family and on their community and on the society at large. That seems to me to be something of an important cultural shift. That cultural shift links to the last of my four. Good. The last, of, sorry about this, the last of my four, which is economics. We've seen a huge investment in research in, in the brain sciences, uh, and it's an investment at a number of different levels. On the one hand, the massive public investment, I guess most uh, emblematically shown by the decade of the brain, but you can see this in a whole series of other areas, into brain research. That public funding is often shaped, I wouldn't say it's always shaped, but it's often shaped by a rhetoric about the future burden of psychiatric disorders. That is to say, a projection about the possible social, political and economic significance of these forms of knowledge is built right into the decisions that are made to invest in them. 
Now, we know that contrary to those who say that all scientific decisions about funding should be based solely on the scientific excellence of the project which the Wellcome Trust or whatever has in front of them, that, of course, is at one level true and at one level completely false because the priorities that are set are set in relation to these kinds of social and political expectations. So these arguments about the burden of brain disorder seem to me to run right back to decisions to make this basic funding happening also runs right back to the, to the rise that so many people have pointed towards, the rise of patients' organisations, and the fact that patients' organisations both lobby for and fund a huge amount of research that's going on in the, in the neurosciences around their own particular uh, disorders. And I've just put one of them up here, which is the only one I could manage to find the logo uh, of the, at uh, my uh, early waking time this, this morning. Um, the th and this, of course, links to the third one, which is the view of the venture capitalists and those who have a commercial interest in these areas, that this market, this market in neurodiagnostics, this market in neuroprosthetics, this market in understanding and intervening in the brain is going to provide a, a, a great source of future wealth. And I know this morning, uh, Paul... Martin and I both have a, a little hobby uh, tr uh, tracing the work of our, my friend and colleague Zach Lynch and NeuroInsight, so I won't, I won't uh, go on about that because many of you will have gone and heard Paul's talk. But uh, Zach Lynch and the work of the neuro bio Neurotechnology Industry Organization explicitly scopes out the market, attempts to predict the market, attempts to advise people on where they should put their investments in this rapidly, rapidly growing market. And the market, uh, one of the key areas of the market is neurodiagnostics, biomarkers, to enable you to screen and intervene. Um, a, a second huge area of the market is now in neuro uh, devices because of the bottleneck that there is in the, in the neuro but the pharmacology industry, the idea of neurodevices, has become an alternative. Enough, enough about that. So, the, and there, of course, um, as some interesting work by uh, Come Back Brains, um, it will come to me later, as some interesting work has recently demonstrated, there are very close relationships between these commercial and venture capitalist companies and the, uh, and the patients' organisations, not just the ones that we know of, uh, the National Alliance of mental, for Mental Illness in the United States, but also these individual, uh, individual organisations. And, of course, not to be uh, uh, left out, we have what, uh, what I would call the new scientific life, uh, described very eloquently uh, by Stephen Shea, in the book whose cover I put there, which is the sense in which every scientist and every university is also a little entrepreneur. Now, we've had a discussion in some of the sessions about why it is that the, the uh, findings of the science are taken up and communicated in ways that radically uh, overestimate and overstate what their significance might be. I think, and there's a question, is this being done by the journalists, is it the scientists or whatever? I think the scientists in this new scientific life find themselves in a tremendously difficult situation to give them the benefit of the doubt, in that on the one hand they know about the limitations of what it is that they're finding, so they always say five or ten years down the line it'll be on the clinic. On the other hand, they know that they're not going to get their money unless they can demonstrate, unless they can assert that there is some impact on 
human health as a result of their, of their study. Health and wealth are absolutely crucial in shaping the path in which these neurosciences develop. So we have a kind of path-dependent theory. I have a, myself, I have a path-dependent theory of truth. There are many, many things that could become true, could be forced into the true in this world. And what becomes true depends on the path down which research goes. Health, wealth, and path dependency. I told you this was just going to be a gestalt. Each of these deserves at least a lecture in, it, in itself. But, um, so, what I've tried to do in this part of the talk is in 30 minutes to try and outline what seemed to me to be some of the conceptual, some of the technological, some of the cultural, and some of the economic conditions that have enabled what seems to me this mutation in the way in which we're coming to understand ourselves. Um, as people may know, I'm a follower of Michel Foucault, and in particular of a wonderful book of his called Birth of the Clinic, and in talking about the birth of clinical medicine at the beginning of the 19th century, Foucault makes the point, and I think it's a very good point, that there was no single fundamental transformation that led from one type of medicine to another type of medicine. What emerged, emerged at the intersection of a range of relatively independent pathways, which when they came together, made something new happen. And I think that's something like I'm trying to suggest here. Okay, I want to just, I, I think I maybe have five minutes if I push Lindsay, who's looking at me significantly here. I have five, five minutes to conclude. So, what's this all about? What are the implications of this? Is what we're seeing here a mutation in personhood, the rise of a cerebral subject, uh, brainhood replacing personhood. We have, in the work that's been done in this area, a number of good ways of thinking about this. We have Ian Hacking's work on humankind. We have the work that people like Ian Hacking and, to some extent, I have done on historical ontology, trying to shape out the changes in the kinds of persons we take ourselves to be and the kinds of persons that others take, ourselves, take us to be, those authorities who shape and mould our conduct, whether they're parents, priests, professionals and, and, and politicians. They trace out the ways in which we've come to think of ourselves in these new ways and with what consequences. Um, and, and unfortunately, this question of how we've come to think of ourselves as certain kinds of persons has obsessed me uh, since uh, I did my degree in psychology and biology in the late 1960s, so I've kind of been working on it for half a century. Um, maybe it's time to stop. It probably is. But it's the same kind of question. Have we become new kinds of persons? I think that now, I think that is far too simple and it's far too overgeneral. What we see if we look at any of these domains, certainly if you look at the clinical domain, is not simply the rise of a, the displacement of an idea that we were psychological persons with the idea that we're now sort of brainy persons or neurobiological persons. We see particular kinds of hybrid relationships emerging there. Of course, says 
everybody, everything goes through the brain. Where else could it go? We've moved beyond Cartesian dualism. The brain is determinative, and yet the brain is itself determined. The brain is there, but the brain is plastic. The brain is changing, etc., etc. Is this neuroreductionism? Well, I think to some extent it's neuroreductionism in the sense that everything passes through the brain. But very few people, I, I would say, very few people, apart from people who want to shock you, very few people actually think that you can have a complete description of human conduct in any field that you like, or a complete description of human pathology in, every field, uh, in any field that you like at the neurobiological level. So something is happening, but it's not neuroreductionism. And I think the challenge for us that are working at this level that I'm working, this dopely abstract level that I'm working at, although I, there is quite a lot of empirical research which underpins this, is to try and think of a way of characterising these new hybrid forms of subjectivity that are emerging. My original question was whether or not we had moved from a psychological complex in which agents governed us in terms of our psychology and in which psychology had become a kind of know-how for governing conduct to a neurobiological <coughs> complex. Was now neurobiology and neurobiological expertise beginning to supplant uh, psychological expertise? And I think one can certainly, in some of those screen and intervene examples that I gave earlier on, one can certainly see the way in which neuro biology is giving rise to new kinds of experts, experts of education, experts of psychiatry, experts of development and so on. But I don't think they're doing it alone. So I think one needs a more complex way of understanding how these neurobiological arguments are hybridized with others. It's very tempting and I've seen this done to say that we're seeing a mutation in biopolitics. We've moved from physical, uh, the emphasis on physical capital to an emphasis on mental capital. We've moved to knowledge-driven economies. That's why the burden of brain disorders is so troubling. We're concerned about the future, and that's why we're concerned with risky brains and brains at risk. This is a new problem for strategies of security. We're seeing a new biopolitics, which sees the brain as the crucial substance on which to act. We see our brains as flexible because we don't want to see ourselves as determined. We want to see the possibilities of intervention, flexible brains in a flexible society. Is this a mutation in biopolitics? Well, as you'll see there, uh, especially at uh, what was now 7 o'clock this morning, my answer was uh, uh, definite, provisional, maybe. And um, how should we respond? Well, we didn't respond with uh, feeling devastated with the work of Sigmund Freud. But with apologies to Sigmund Freud, I'll let him have the last word. I'm sure many of you will be familiar with Freud's ideas about the blow to the naive self-love of human beings that psychoanalysis struck by showing that Human beings were not even masters in their own house, but they must content themselves with scanty information of what's going on unconsciously in their mind. The social and human sciences opened their arms and their hearts to psychoanalysis. They didn't feel this was a fundamental blow to everything that the human sciences stood for. Quite the reverse. 
I don't myself see why the human sciences should feel so threatened, as so many of them do, by simply replacing psychoanalysis with neuroscience here as another way of thinking, after all, something that our radical thinkers have told us for many years, that we are not masters in our own houses. And uh, at that point, uh, I will thank you very much for your attention and stop. Thank <clears throat> you.